Happy New Year, Church of 1122. How's everybody doing? Doing good? Awesome. You look thinner already. Hey, uh, if you've got your Bibles, grab them. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. Um, <clears throat> Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Uh, we'll be there for the entire spring. Just real quick, as you can see, it's really, really full, and the sanctuary is also really full. For those of you worshiping in the sanctuary, thank you so much. Um, if you could, if y'all could kind of scoot in a little bit, we still have people coming in the doors looking for a seat, and so just kind of pile in tight, you skinny chicks, just share one seat, whatever it takes, okay? That way the people that are coming in can get a seat on the edge. Um, <clears throat> with that in mind, we're starting a brand new live service next week at 1.30. Um, be live band, live me, all of that, right after this service. There's an orange card, I think, in the seat back in front of you. We need a few hundred of you to begin attending the 130 service so that this service has more room available so more people can come to this service and meet Jesus, all right? That's why we want to do this. So if you would please, if you, when I get to the boring parts of the sermon, just get this out, pray over it. God's already said for you to move. He told me to tell you that. And then fill this out. You can drop it in the giving box on your way out today. Um, <clears throat> we are glad that you are here today. And good news, you have perfect attendance at church this year already. Don't you feel so good about yourself? All right, it's the only nice thing I'll say to you all week. All right, so... Hey, uh, one other thing, our family's growing um, because our, some of our staff people have had kids, and I want, you to introduce, I want to introduce you to them. One of them is born at 12.49 a.m. on New Year's Eve, I think it's for tax purposes, I think that's why, and she's six pounds, four ounces, and is 18 and a half inches long, and so that's always pertinent information for babies, and sounds like a keeper, right? That's keeper size. And then also Mason Brown, <coughs> Mason Brown uh, was added to Stacy and Craig Brown's family and Parker Brown. And hit Mason's birthday, he's from China, Mason's birthday is Christmas Day, how cool is that? And he was adopted on November the 17th of 2014, and he is 24 pounds and 33 inches, all right? <laughs> now, <clears throat> part of the reason, um, I just, I like, you know, when our staff has kids, I think everybody should know. But part of the reason I show you that too is if you, if you knew Carol and Stacy, and you knew <clears throat> their story um, in, in adding to their family, then you would know that there, years ago, there was an immense pain when it came to pregnancy and children, and there were some failed pregnancies and stuff like that. And the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. The Bible also says that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. And what we can see is our external circumstances. But thank God, as Christians, we don't just believe and we're not lorded by our circumstances, but we believe in Jesus and that he is Lord over our circumstances. And the pain that those women walked through years ago, I think partly part of the reason God wouldn't let them see the favor that he's put on them now is because <clears throat> by faith it required for them to lean into the sovereign hand of God then in that pain so that they can enjoy the redemption of having a son and a daughter in their, in their world today. And so that's a big part of what we're going to talk about as we look at um, this person that probably you've heard of before. His name's Moses. We're going we're gonna to study him for a few weeks. We're going to be in the book of Exodus for all of, all of the spring. All right, so Exodus chapter 2, we're going to pick up on the life of Moses. Um, I hope your Christmas was great, and I hope you got everything you wanted for Christmas. I got the flu, and so that's why I'm using this mic today, so I do a little bit of cough control, um, or I might sing. I mean, you don't know. I might just, uh, probably not. <clears throat> that would cure our crowded problem, though. All right, here we go. So, <clears throat> so if you remember last semester when we were in the book of Genesis, the way it ended up is there was a guy named Joseph, not Christmas Joseph, but Old Testament Joseph, coat of many colors Joseph, that God used him um, to save his brothers That through a, a really weird set of circumstances where his brothers tried to kill him. Um, he ended up as a slave in Egypt. He ended up becoming the vice president of all of Egypt. And then a great famine came over all of the land. And God used all of those circumstances to bring his family to Egypt. And that Joseph kind of saved their lives. And that God favored that family. And, and essentially what God was doing is that God, was, <clears throat> God had a purpose and a plan to create a nation out of which the Messiah would come from. So that's how Genesis chapter 50, the end of Genesis, ends. And then if you turn over one page to Exodus chapter 1, a lot changes. Joseph and his dad and all his brothers, they die. The Pharaoh that favored Joseph and his family, they die. So now <clears throat> you've got, the, you've got the, um, the generations that follow Joseph and his brothers, and then you've got another Pharaoh that followed the Pharaoh that favored Joseph. And this new Pharaoh is intimidated. He's fearful of the number of Hebrew children that are being born, and the Hebrew people are outnumbering the Egyptians. And out of fear, the Pharaoh gets nervous, and in chapter 1, he even says, what if one day all these Hebrew kids turn against us? So he says, here's what we're going to do. Um, 
<clears throat> he brings the, the Jewish midwives together, and he says, listen, um, when the Hebrew people have a baby girl, no problem, but when they have a baby boy, kill it. And they're like, no way, we're not going to do it. And so he brings in the midwives and goes, how come you're not killing the boys? And their excuse is, you don't know about these Hebrew women, man. They crank out babies like Jiffy Lube. It's just like one after the other. We can't even get there. And loose translation, but essentially that's what they say. <clears throat> so he says, okay, all of the boys, <clears throat> all of the little boys that, that, are, that are Hebrew, then we're going to kill all of them to wipe out, um, to wipe out this, this growing population. And that's where we pick up chapter 2. Verse 1. It says, Now a man, a man from the house of Levi, went and took it as his, as his wife, a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Again, because she thought Pharaoh was going to kill him. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. But she put the child in, in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now listen. If you grew up in Sunday school, which I know a lot of you did, and you begin to hear about the story of Moses, then too quickly you begin to think like flannel, flannel graph um, Bible story. And you forget that this was an actual event. So don't run by this too quickly. Listen, moms. Think about what the, what the mother of Moses must be experiencing in this moment right now. That on the day that, that she delivers her baby, and they say, congratulations, it's a boy, her first thought is, oh, no. Because she was praying that it would be a girl so she wouldn't have to deal with this. And now she's found out that she's having a boy. And she knows that Pharaoh's going to try to kill her son. And so she tries to hide him and hide him and hide him. And now he's like three months old. And she knows <clears throat> that as soon as Pharaoh finds out that she's got a little boy in her house, that he's going to send guards in to kill her little boy. And so she gets to the place in her life where she thinks the best option, the best opportunity for her little baby boy is to put him in a little raft and put him in the Nile and just, and with a lot of fear and a lot of trepidation and a lot of doubt and a lot of, oh no, look up at God and say, God, he's in your hands. God, he's in your hands. The only chance that my son has is, God, you're going to have to intervene. And let me just say this, parents, if you're a parent, okay, listen to me, not, not, not in this kind of extreme way, all right? But every single one of us, if you are a parent, have to get to the place in your life where at some level you take that precious little baby boy or girl that God has blessed you with and you say, all right, God, they're yours. They're not mine, they're yours. And I am just a steward over this child's life for the time that you have given them to me. Now, yes, we are to protect. Yes, we are to provide. Yes, we are to keep them safe. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that this afternoon you take your little kid and you go to the St. John's and be like, good luck, Jesus save him, okay? Now, if you've got teenagers, that's kind of what you want to do. Sorry, teens, you'll be back, you'll be back. But in our generation, we, we don't just keep our kids safe. Honestly, I mean, let's just be honest. Don't most of us really worship at the idol of safety? In fact, we treat our kids like they, they are God, not like they're God's gift to us for us to raise and to steward. I'm telling you, we worship at the idol of safety and security. And I don't know if you look through the scripture, but the point of the scriptures is not safety and security. It's to walk by faith. It's to have extraordinary kind of faith that trusts God in some circumstances that are just some, crazy sometimes. It, it really came to light to me on, on New Year's Eve. On New Year's Eve, we were on our street um, um, setting off some fireworks, all right? If you could even call them fireworks these days, I mean, I don't know about you, but the fireworks I grew up with were like real fireworks. These were just like colored flames. Now, we did colored flames back in the day, too, but that's a totally different thing, okay? Ask your teenagers. And so, <clears throat> but these things, you just light them, and they just, they were just a little, you know, sparklers. That's all they were. They were fancy sparklers. And I thought, no wonder we have a generation of wusses, all right? And let me tell you why this offended me so much. I'm from Dillon, South Carolina. You know where, you know what's in Dillon, South Carolina? It's this place, this glorious, glorious place called South of the Border. If you've ever been driving on I-95 North and you see that, those really tacky signs, they have like the big sausage and it says, you never sausage a place, South of the Border, one mile, right? That's where I grew up. That's Dillon, South Carolina. And the reason that it's called South of the Border is because it is founded upon legal fireworks, and all the wimpy, liberal North Carolinians would have to drive south of the border into South Carolina where they don't care about things like safety and digits. And so you could get free, not free, you could get legal 
legal fireworks that could actually blow up. <clears throat> and I don't know, did you grow up with these kind? They shot up in the air and they exploded. And if they went off in your hand, your new nickname was Lefty. That's a fact, okay? And so people from North Carolina would drive down to south of the border and go there and find, find a guy there named Bud with three fingers. Total, both hands combined, three fingers. He couldn't even light the lighter required to launch the fireworks, but that, so you knew he was good at his job. <clears throat> and the, <clears throat> these were the kind of fireworks that if you put them in a mailbox, it would take the top of the mailbox off. That's a fact, all right? And somebody, somebody was going, on, going to the ER every 4th of July and every New Year's Eve, right? Remember? Or how many of you guys grew up with a helmet to ride a bicycle? Not me. When I was a kid, if you put on a helmet to ride a bicycle, you better be competing in motocross. That's a fact. But even now, I mean, I'm not that old. I'm 41 years old. But it's changed a whole lot from the time that I was a kid until now. Because Santa Claus brought Reagan a a little Elsa Frozen bike, all right, because you can't get enough Frozen. And what did we do? First thing we did, we get a little princess helmet. Why? Because we don't want her to, you know, crack her head open or whatever. But I can remember, I can remember growing up without even seat belts. Did y'all have seat belts? We didn't have seat belts. We'd drive around in my daddy's 73 Chevy pickup truck with my, my younger brother, Russ, standing, standing in the middle seat. Standing. Why? Who needs a seat belt when dad had the bionic I got you arm if we slow down too fast? No AC. Daddy chain smoking like a freight train. It's probably why I cough all the time. And we had that one little triangle window that sometimes he'd let us open up and we could, you know, get a little air. <coughs> And then I can remember reaching around behind me and finding the seatbelt going, Daddy, what's this? He goes, Son, tuck that down in there. It's going to fly around and hurt somebody. That's what we grew up with. Okay? We were tough. Now, today, <clears throat> you got to get in a five-point harness system. I mean, my kid to get to the grocery store is safer than Neil Armstrong was to go to the moon. That's a fact. Now, all of those are seat belts and, and fireworks that don't blow your fingers off and things like that. They're probably all good advancements, all right? Except probably one of the most dangerous things that we could ever do as parents is never take our kid out of that five-point harness and hover them and overparent with all the right motivation and never get to that point where we say, okay, God, they're really yours. They've always been yours. And at some point, I've got to turn them loose to you. And God, I trust that you have a purpose and a plan for their life. And you love them more than I do. You love them more than I do. So my job is to steward them as long as you give them to me. That I gather around the little kindling around their hearts so the Holy Spirit, when you light the fire in their heart, they catch on fire for you. And what you say is important is the most important thing in their world. And so, to some extent, we have to do what Moses' mom here is doing. And then for those of you that are parents, if you, if you don't have kids yet, just hang with me here. <clears throat> for those of you that are parents, do you remember what you thought about your kid when you brought him home from the hospital? Now, one of my first thoughts was, oh, no, y'all really going to let me take him home? Okay, because that's scary. I had more instructions on how to drive than how to raise a person, but whatever. They're like, yeah, it's, your time's up here. And you think, oh, thank goodness I'm married to Gretchen that she knows what to do because I didn't know what to do. I was scared. But all of us, <clears throat> all of us, well, hopefully not one parent in here looked at your little chubby bundle of joy that you thought was the cutest baby alive. They're not. They look like all the other ones, but you think they are, right? Like this one, Gerber's going to be knocking down my door here, okay? Probably not, but whatever. And none of us look at that and look at your kid and go, you know what, kid? You are very, very average. Nobody, everybody thinks their kid is just going to be amazing, Right? I mean, you look at that kid, you feel overwhelmed by the responsibility, and all of us had that Simba moment. At some point with your kid, didn't you have that Simba moment, or all of them, where you would hold your kid up, and you would be like, one day this will all be yours. And you had hopes and dreams, and you knew that God knit them together in their mother's womb, and you knew that God had a purpose and a plan, and this world would be a different place and could be a different place for this kid. That's just true, isn't it? Don't you think, don't you think <coughs> Moses' mom at some level thought that. I mean, even with the fears and doubt of, oh no, she had to look up at God and go, God, you got this. Well, what I want to do for the rest of the text is this. Often it's easy for us to see God's plans and purpose and potential in somebody else, and yet we don't think that God looks at us that way. 
I need you to just consider something for a minute. Did you know that a hundred years ago you were just an idea in the mind of God? That's a fact, that you were just an idea in the mind of God. God thought of you. And he doesn't make junk. And he created you on time and on purpose. Okay? And your mom and daddy may have said that you're an accident. No, there is no such thing as an accidental child. Accidental parents, maybe, okay? But never, <clears throat> never accidental children. That you were created on purpose. And God has a purpose for you, and he has a plan for you. And it's not to harm you, but it's to give you a hope and a future. And that's true. And that when God looks at you, I think he sees you the way a good dad sees a son or a daughter. And he's full of hope and full of potential. I mean, I can tell you, one of the happiest days of my entire life was the day that Gretchen and I were at the, at the baby doctor appointment and doing the sonogram thing. And that doctor looked at me and she said, congratulations, Mr. Martin, you're having a boy. And I scooped her up and gave her a hug. I've never met that lady in my life, okay? And so, and I went outside and I was so excited and I called my daddy on the phone. I was like, daddy, I made a boy. That's what I said. And he said, I knew you had it in you, son. All right? And so... I mean, think about it. I named my son Joseph Perry Martin the fourth. I'm the third. My daddy's junior. We're really into us, okay? We, we were into it. And in much the same way God looked at you when you went from an idea to a reality and he never looked at any of us in the room and thought, hmm, average, never, never, ever. That he loves you, he adores you, he has a plan for you and a purpose for you. And I want, I want you to consider... <clears throat> That everything that God has been doing in your life was to prepare you for this moment that God has planned for you right now. And we can see it in the life of Moses. So, let's pick it up in verse 4. So, at this point, Moses' mom has fashioned together this little life raft, put Moses in it, looks up in God and says, God, this is my only hope, and sends him down the Nile. And his sister stood, this is Moses' sister, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. And now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And then the sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse a child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And so the girl went and called the child's mother. That's very important. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. And so the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, here's what happens, okay? So here's Pharaoh's, I mean, here's here's Moses' mom. I don't know what to do. This is my best opportunity, my best chance for my kid to make it. Sends him down the aisle. And then Moses has an older sister. And I don't have an older sister, but I've met some older sisters. And they're all snoops, right? They're always snooping into their little brother's business. And so sure enough, God uses her snooping around on her little brother. And then Pharaoh's daughter's bathing in the river. Sees the basket, gets the kid out. What am I going to do with this kid? I know the law says to kill him, but I'm not going to kill him. And then Moses' (coughs) Moses' sister says, hey, how about I go get you a nanny, a Hebrew nanny? And Pharaoh's daughter said, that's perfect. And of all the nannies in the entire Hebrew nation, who gets the opportunity to raise this little boy but the mom of this little boy? I mean, you want to talk about the providential hand of God in this situation. You see, here's the thing. As Christians, we don't believe in in happenstance, we don't believe in coincidence, we don't believe in circumstance. We believe in Jesus, and he is the Lord of all, and he is the Lord over all. You see, your circumstances are not your Lord. Jesus is your Lord. I think that's a big reason the Bible says to walk by faith and not by sight. You can see your circumstances, but it takes faith to walk with Jesus. And so, look at at God's provision, God's provision in the life of Moses. Not only is Moses saved, not only does his mom get to raise him, but he gets to be raised in the household or the palace of Pharaoh. Now, is that just for his own benefit? Not at all. But there's going to come a day decades from now, about 40 years from now, where God's going to show up one day when Moses is an old man, actually 80 years from this point, and he's going to say to Moses, hey Moses, I want you to go back to the house of Pharaoh, I want you to look Pharaoh right in the eyes, and I want you to tell him that you're here on my behalf, and I want you to tell him to let my people go. And Moses is going to respond, but who am I to talk to the Pharaoh? 
And God could say to him, actually, you're the only Hebrew boy that's going to grow up in the very household of Pharaoh. And this is not just provision for your own sake, but I've got a greater plan, a plan that is greater than you, that includes the delivery of my people. And so I'm not just picking you, I'm preparing you. I'm going to grow you up in the household of Pharaoh, and you're going to know the way the household works. You're going to know the right people so that you can get the face-to-face meeting with the Pharaoh 80 years from now so that you can do what I am planning for you to do. I don't know, I don't know if you've ever thought about it in your own life, but do you know how blessed we are? I mean, so many of us in this room, do you know how blessed we are? I mean, we're so blessed to live in this country. There's very few of us today that walked in the room and and were just overwhelmed with gratitude that we could gather and worship the name of Jesus in freedom. And yet, we stand on the shoulders of men and women who shed their blood and died so that we could do exactly what we are doing today. You know that there are people all over the world that are huddled together today, afraid for their lives because they're gathered in Jesus' name. But by the providence of God, God's goodness and God's sovereignty, here we are in an old Walmart worshiping Jesus. Do you know that little book, your Bible, that you left here back in August, the leather-bound one with your name on it? We know who you are, okay? It's in our lost and found. You left your sunglasses, you called us right back. You leave your Bible, and whatever. Do you know how many men and women (coughs) shed blood and died so that you and I could have a copy of God's Word? Do you know how blessed we are to be born when we were born and live where we live? It is God's providence just like God was in charge of blessing Moses. But the deal is, he, <clears throat> he wasn't blessing Moses for Moses' sake. He was blessing Moses for his own sake. Did you ever consider that God's providence in your life may have to do more with God's plans than your own? And so everything in Moses' life right now is going great. I mean, I'm sure there are times when he look, when he's, as he's you know, becoming a teenager and, and in his early 20s, he's looking around and think, <clears throat> thinks, what in the world have I done to deserve to grow up in the richest house in the world with the best education, with, with the right kind of relationships? And the answer is nothing, but God was preparing him that one day he would come back to that place. And just when everything was going right, just when everything was going right, you get to verse 11. It says, one day... <clears throat> One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, you see, like most of us, some of our strengths can become our weaknesses. You know that, right? So like there's some, you know, I've got lots and lots and lots of weaknesses and I've got a couple of few strengths. And one of the things that is near and dear to my heart, it's very much like Moses, is that Moses was a protector of his people. I have that kind of in me. I am a protector of my people. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, if you're my people, it's a good thing. And, and I am kind of have that big brother syndrome. Like, I can yell at you. Like, as a people of the Church of 1122, I can yell at you every week, you wretched black-hearted sinners. But you let somebody else yell at you, and I'll beat you up. That's how that works, right? <clears throat> or, and especially, especially you try to hurt my people like my Martin people that live in my house. Okay, I've told you this before. I will not be disqualified as your pastor when it comes to monies and honeys. I've got enough guardrails in my life to protect me from both. But you hurt my wife, you hurt, try to hurt my kids, I will start my prison ministry from the inside. That's a fact. Some things are, are worth going to prison for, no problem. Moses has a little bit of this in him too. He sees, <clears throat> he sees uh, one of the Egyptians hurting his people, and so in verse 12... He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, and he hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And in that moment, Moses thought, oh, scubilon, they know. Because whatever happens in private always goes public. That's just true. I mean, you think you can kind of keep everything under wraps. I'm sure after he killed the Egyptian and dug the hole and, you know, buried him like it was kitty litter, and then he goes to his Hebrew brother and he's like, hey, bro, hey, bro's first, right? Don't tell anybody. It's just between me and you. And, and that Hebrew guy was like, yeah, no problem. I would never tell anybody. And then as soon as he made it to disciple group, he's like, I got a prayer request. Moses killed a guy, and we got to pray about it, okay? Because that's what we do. <clears throat> and then word gets out. And whatever happens in private always goes public. And then Moses figures out pretty quickly that everybody knows. And so the second half of verse 14, then Moses was afraid. And he, and he thought, 
Surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh, and he stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. And you know what he thought when he sat down by that well? Well, I've really screwed this up. Because I'm sure when he was growing up, somebody, his mama or somebody probably told him, Moses, like every mama does, Moses, God has a purpose for you, and God has a plan for you, and God rescued you out of the Nile, and he's raised you up in Pharaoh's house, and you're, and you're good at t-ball, and you're a rainbow, and you're a snowflake, and God has it all worked out for you. And Moses, probably because he's a leader, <clears throat> he probably believed that. Yeah, God does have a plan for me, and God's going to do great things through me. And then one day, he finds himself sitting at a well in, in Midian, and he thinks, well, I've really screwed that whole thing up. And it may be true that God had a plan for me and God had a purpose for me and God had a track for me, but I think I've just messed up God's entire plan because obviously God can't use a murderer. And to some extent, I bet every single one of us have thought something like that before. Confession time, if we're honest. I know it's church and it's the new year. It's not a time to be honest. But if I'm honest with you, I've had that thought a hundred times a week. That God couldn't use a guy like me. And I know you thought that too. God couldn't use somebody like me. As soon as it goes public, as soon as they know what I've done or know what I've thought, I must be disqualified. Hey, I got some good news for you. <clears throat> that the cross of Jesus Christ is way bigger than anything that you've done in your past. And God's sovereignty is way bigger than any plans you have for your future. And, and you get verses like this in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. The Bible says, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. You know what that means? The next time you get that little voice in your head that says you're disqualified, here's what I can promise you. The next time you get that little voice, that voice of condemnation, that you're not good enough, that you can't do it, that God, maybe he used to have a plan for you, but he can't use somebody like you now. That is not the voice of the Heavenly Father. That is the voice of the enemy that is trying to steal and kill and destroy you. But God's voice, the voice of our loving Heavenly Father, only says, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in that same chapter, when you get to verse 28, you know what it says? That God works in all things for the good of those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. Now, if you think about this too much, it'll make your head blow up. But did you know that God can use all things? All things, like even our own sin, our own mistakes our own bad choices for his glory. Now, now that'll mess with your mind, right? And that nothing, nothing disqualifies. In fact, you know what the cross is? The cross is just a big picture that you and I are nothing but screw-ups. That you don't just tell lies, you're a liar. That nobody's broken more promises to you than you. That at the heart of the problem is your heart and my heart. Therefore, Jesus had to die on the cross to redeem us and renew us and rescue us. And the next time the enemy points out all of your faults, just point to the cross and go, I know it's worse than you think. I was dead and he made me alive. And because he is in control and I'm not in control, he can use all things, even my own sin, even my own mistakes, even my own poor decisions, that he can use all things for his glory, for those who are called according to his purpose. And I love him, and I'm called according to his purpose. And that's true about you. That's true about you. And as a pastor at this church, I get a front row seat to it every single week. That God will not waste a pain, even the self-inflicted one. We got a guy on staff here, um, and I knew about him a long time before I'd ever met him. Uh, My wife Gretchen used to run a a high school small group when I was the youth pastor at Beach. And at the end of every small group, one of the high school girls, her junior and senior year, she would say, can we please pray for my brother? All right? My brother's life is a train wreck. He's a farmer in Arkansas. He's addicted to drugs. He's half homeless. His whole life is just an absolute train wreck. He kind of grew up around Jesus. He says he knows him, but he sure ain't acting like it. Can we pray for him? And faithfully, that group prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for this girl's brother in Arkansas. Then one day, years and years later, when we had started the, the service, 1122, over at Beach, I walked into a restaurant and this guy says, Hey, Pastor Joby, uh, my name's Walker Day and I go to your church. And so I was like, hey, tell me your story. And he says, I'm a farmer from Arkansas. And I said, sweet, let's talk about deer food plots. What do you know about planting deer food plots? And that's, that's what we started talking about. <clears throat> he went on to begin to tell me his story. And 
He said, uh, well, I was, uh, you know, I was in Arkansas, and I actually came to Jacksonville to party, and I got a DUI, and I lost my license, and so I could not drive back to Arkansas, so I got stuck here. And while I was stuck here, I started attending 1122, got my life, life right with Jesus. I went to a um, Salvation Army, like, like, detox rehab program, graduated from that, and then <clears throat> turns out that that's the guy that my wife and her small group had been praying for for all those years before. When he, he joined my disciple group, I disciple a group of young men, young kind of up-and-coming leaders. And as we were talking about launching the Church of 1122, Walker Day said, I just want to be a part of the movement. I'll do anything to be a part of that movement. I'll, I'll wash the toilets, I'll mop the floors, I'll do anything. So I said, you're hired. And that's what he did right when we opened, is that he, was, he ran the facilities here at the Church of 1122. Now, you fast forward to today. And you know what happens? Every single week, Time after time after time, I meet somebody, and they're usually around here mopping the floors or something, and I say, how'd you get here? And they say, I met a guy named Walker Day, and he pointed me to Jesus. And so, was it God's plan in Walker Day's life to be on drugs and to do those things? Absolutely not. But a sovereign God can use any kind of pain, even self-inflicted pain for his own glory and goodness. And so guess what happens right here at the Church of 1122? If you're addicted, if you're on drugs, if you're down and out, guess who we point those people to? Walker Day points those people to Jesus. And I promise you this, I get a lot of the credit because I have the microphone, but that dude does more ministry every single week than I do in a month, and that's a fact. It's just true. And here's why. Because when Jesus healed him and saved him and said, pick up your mat and follow me, he was not ashamed of his mat. Because the cross of Jesus Christ was glorified because of the filth of that dude's mat. And other people that have laid on a similar mat, he can can say the exact right thing at the exact right time. Now, sometimes it happens in the other direction. And I've got good news, because some of you think this. You think, well, that's good for Walker, but I've never been addicted to anything, so how's God going to use me? I've been a pretty good person. Listen, I've got good news for you if you're a good person that you can get saved too, and that God can use you too. That's good news. <clears throat> like the chairman of the Board of Elders here, Lars Peterson. We call him Petey. His name's Lars Peter Peterson. We call him Petey. And Petey, for years, he pursued the things of this world. Not, not in any kind of overtly evil way, but he worked hard, he's super smart, and he became a high-level executive first for Macy's department stores, and then he transferred and he went to Belk department stores. And he was like the chairman of the board for these people, Okay. And again, it, it was very good company. I mean, Belk is a great company run by Christian men, and everybody needs underwear. So it's a great, great deal. <clears throat> and he achieved everything that this world was offering. All the cash and prizes and sports cards, homes, vacations, all of those things. And then he experienced, as an upper-level executive with Belk, what you and I experienced on Christmas Day. That the stuff will not fully and finally satisfy. And at a worship service at a good church in Charleston, South Carolina, he surrendered his life to the Lordship of Christ. And then by the providence and the sovereignty of God, God used Belk to move Petey to Jacksonville, Florida. And what Petey did for the last bunch of years while he was working at Belk Department Stores, check it out. They had a new strategy on how to grow Belks. And it was to find old, dilapidated Walmarts where they had moved out of old Walmarts and into new supercenters. And Belk would come in and they would transform an old, abandoned Walmart into a brand new Belk. And then one day, in a service at, at Beach, God spoke to the heart of Petey. And he was 53 years old. And he said to Petey, it's time for you to retire to cash out of, of kind of the, the you know, merry-go-round of normality. And I want you to take all your efforts and energy, and I want you to come work for the church. And that's when God introduced me and Lars Peterson. And the way he introduced us is Lars wanted, Petey wanted to be a hunter. And he was a great executive. He was not a great hunter, okay? <laughs> we would go into the woods, and he would smell like the perfume department at Belk. And so it doesn't work out. <clears throat> Very well-pressed camouflage clothes. All right? It was great. We started meeting weekly. We had no idea that God had this in mind. And then, as God began to unveil his plans for the church of 1122, Petey put me in his truck, drove me to the parking lot of this old Walmart. And he said, I've spent the last 10 years of my life turning buildings like that into something useful. And and he said, we could put the church in that Walmart. And we came, and we looked through those glass doors out there, and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. This place looks like the end of a Terminator 2 movie. I'm pretty sure Slayman's got dead bodies stashed back there somewhere. I can smell them, okay? That's what we thought. 
And then I'll tell you this. If there's no Lars Peterson, there is no Church of 1122. He's been the most influential man in my life over the past bunch of years, okay? And what? And see, he thought he was selling underwear, and he was really, really good at it. Little did he know that what God was actually doing was preparing him to be the chairman of the Board of Elders of the Church of 1122. You see, God does not waste time. He does not waste time. He doesn't waste pain, nor does he waste provision. And so I would ask, so what about you? What about you? What is God preparing for you? Because he even uses Moses' sin to get him to the right place at the right time. Look where Moses ends up. Verse 16, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them. See, he had that like deliverer gene in him already, and he watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Raul, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Verse 21, And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Sipporah, and he gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, the part I don't want you to miss here is that Moses was content to dwell with the man. So once again, <clears throat> Moses is sitting on this well thinking, well, I guess I've screwed everything up. And once again, God provides a way for him where there doesn't seem to be a way. He gives him a wife, gives him a family, gives him a job working for his father-in-law. And Moses says, hey, I am perfectly content. But little did Moses know, do you know what God was doing in his life? That God was preparing him for what God had planned for God's people. So not only did, did God save Moses out of the Nile and let him grow up in Pharaoh's house so that one day he could go back to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. But now, even through Moses' own sin, he takes him to a place and says, for the next 40 years, Moses, I'm going to teach you how to shepherd a flock in the desert. Do you know Why? Because we're going to find out next week in chapter 3 that when God comes to Moses through the burning bush and says, Moses, go to the Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Moses is going to say, who am I? Well, first of all, Moses, you grew up in Pharaoh's house. You're the only person that I've prepared to do this job for. And, second, and then Moses might say, well, what am I going to do when he lets the people go? I've been preparing you to learn how to shepherd a flock out in the desert. That's what you're going to do for the rest of your days. That every detail of Moses' life was being shaped by God. But don't miss this. But don't miss this. But Moses was not the point. God's story and God's glory was the point. That the reason that God saved Moses is not because Moses was awesome, but because God is awesome. The reason that he grew him up in Pharaoh's house was not for the sake of Moses, but for the glory of God. The reason that he taught him how to be a shepherd out in the desert for all of these years was not for Moses' sake, but was for the sake of God. And let me tell you this, on the first Sunday after New Year's, okay, you and I are not the point. We are not the point. And the reason God allows you to go through pain and the reason God provides for you so much, it's not about you, it's all about Him. And if you can get to the place and I can get to the place when we realize that it's not about me and I'm not the point, you can just kind of exhale, and it's one of the most freeing things that you can ever experience. And listen, we live in a culture that teaches us, you're the point. You're a butterfly, you're a snowflake, you're a rainbow, you're so special, you're unique just like everybody else, and the whole world needs to revolve around you. In fact, when I was getting dressed today, I noticed that on the bottom of my shirt is a core value of our society. It says, live comfortable. That's what my shirt says. You can't even get dressed in our culture without it lying to you and saying it's all about you, you precious, precious little snowflake. That is a lie from the depths of hell. You know why? Because it is not about you. You are not the point. That your story is all about his glory. And if you and I can get to the place where we realize that it's about him and it's not about us, then we can walk through both pain and provision realizing that he has a purpose that's bigger than our little stinking world. Because you know what's true? Do you know the majority, <clears throat> the majority of the frustration that you and I experience is because you think you're the point. Only people that think they're the point can get offended. When you're driving down the road and you're mad at traffic, you know why? You think you're the point. Get out of the left lane. You know what you're saying? It's all about me. 
Every single time. JP and I went to the grocery store yesterday. We had nine items. We got in the ten items or fewer. What do you do when you get in the ten items or fewer line? You look in the basket in front of you and go, you liar. You're either a liar or you can't count, all right? You're dumb or it's one of those two. You know what you're saying? I'm the point. When you begin to realize that you're not the point and that your story is for his glory, I'm telling you, it will give you a freedom. You know what the freedom is? Then it's not about begrudging submission to God, but you actually get to walk in freedom. Also, your world doesn't have to be perfect for God's kingdom to advance. That you can, you can walk in the freedom that he got you into this and he can take care of the details. You can also begin to understand that the cross outs you. That we're all wretched black-hearted sinners. That's why he died on the cross. And when we do stumble and when we do fall, we don't have to be like Adam and Eve and run and hide and cover it up because we think we're the point. We can run to him and not from him because the cross is the invitation to run to him. See, you're not the point. And when you see that you're not the point and I see <clears throat> that I'm not the point, that's when... That's when we can begin to trust his hand. And, and some, people, some people will turn to some verses and be like, no, I don't think you understand. The Lord's really into me. I mean, the Lord is really into me. And he is. He's for you. He demonstrated his love for you on the cross, that he died for you. But the reason that he did that, the motivation behind that isn't you. It's not. And if you think it is, that's too much pressure for you to bear. Because when you screw it up, and you will screw it up, then you'll think he's just not that much into you anymore. But if his motivation for loving you and pursuing you and being into you is his glorious name, then it never changes. Like, look at Psalm 23. At first, if you don't pay careful attention, it looks like that it's all about you. I mean, even if you haven't been around a Bible in a long time, you've probably heard Psalm 23. It starts out this way. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. That sounds like, well, isn't he pretty into me? I mean, he's the shepherd and I'm the sheep. When the Bible calls you a sheep, that is not a compliment. Do you know that? Do you know that sheep are the dumbest animal on the face of the planet? Do you know that? Do you know that sheep are the only animal that do not have a flight or fight mechanism? Every other animal, when they perceive danger, they either run or they fight. You know what a sheep does? Just stands there looking delicious. That's what they do. (laughs) They're covered head to toe in Velcro so that no matter what position they're in, the predator can get a good hold on them and eat them. That's you. God says, you dumb, dumb, pitiful, poor people, you need help. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down by green pastures. And you think, well, isn't he into me? I mean, he's going to give me a vacation. Do you know what this means? Like, he makes you lie down in green pastures. You know why? Because sheep are one of the only animals that cannot distinguish between poisonous and non-poisonous food. They just eat whatever's in front of them, and it might kill them. Sound familiar? That's us. That's God coming in going, no, 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 dummy, don't eat here. You're going to have to eat over here. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You know, a sheep is one of the only animals dumb enough to drown while drinking. They get enamored with the bubbling brook. They see the white water. They'll stick their head in it. Their wool will get saturated, and they just fall in and die and drown. And you look at them and go, dumb animal. Until you watch every testimony video we have, how does it start? Well, I saw a babbling brook, stuck my head in it, and I was drowning. That's how they all go. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? Because I'm awesome? Mm-mm. For his name's sake. Does God love you? <clears throat> More than I could ever describe. Is he into you? Yeah, you're the apple of his eye. You're knit together in your mother's womb. He has a purpose and a plan for you. Yes and amen. But Why? Because you're awesome, you're not that awesome. He is. It's for his glorious name. So you know what that means? That's why his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Because it ain't about you. It's about him. That you're not the point and I'm not the point. That's why James, the, step, the half-brother of Jesus, <clears throat> says this. What causes, what causes fights and quarrels among you? You want something and you don't get it. That's James's way of saying because you think you're the point. And when you can realize, you know what, I'm not the point, and my story is a part of God's greater glory, then there is no more joy, there is no more fullness of life than walking in the glory of God. Saying, okay, God, I surrender. We're going to do this in your way and not my way. And I'm going to find my joy and my peace and my security in your glory, not in getting what I want. And so God's provision in Moses' life was not so that Moses could have a great life. 
but because God had a much grander story that he invites Moses to come and be a part of. Here's the point. That sovereign God orchestrates the details of our lives for his glory. He uses both pain and provision to accomplish his plans, and he still got the whole world in his hand. That it was not an accident (coughs) that Moses grew up in the house of Pharaoh, because one day he'd go toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. It was not an accident that for 40 years Moses was a shepherd in the desert because for the rest of his days he learned how to shepherd flocks in the desert. And it's not an accident that you sit in this seat here this morning in this place. And I would like for you, I'd like for you to look back over your life and can you see the sovereign hand of God in your life? Can you see times where you were going through immense pain and I'm not saying it didn't hurt, but you can look back And you can see how God used that pain in your past and gave it a purpose now. I mean, at our Thursday night service, it was unbelievable. At the end of the service, I'm standing down front coughing on people, and this lady comes up and says, can you please help my friend? She lost her husband a year ago and is having a really, really hard time with it. And I said, well, does she know Alice sitting next to her lost her husband last year? They'd never met before in their life, and they were sitting next to each other in the service. And all I did was just say, um, hey, you lost your husband. I have no idea what to say about that, but Alice did too and just got out of the way and watched God redeem some pain in Alice's life to find some purpose in this lady's life. So what about you? Sometimes we can see it in other people's lives. Can you see it in your own? Can you see God using pain in your past for a purpose today? Or <clears throat> could you consider that some of the provision that God has given you, maybe it wasn't about you and your comfort, but he was actually molding you and shaping you because he has a greater plan and a purpose? Hey, you want a crappy 2015? Just try to be a better version of you again this year. You want to walk in a freedom and a joy that maybe you haven't experienced in a long time? You live your story for his glory and watch what happens. Because I can tell you, he's still got the whole world in his hands and he's orchestrating those details together. Not about you, but it's about him. Look, I can give you two from my own life. One is pain. I don't talk about it often, but one of the most painful things... It's impacted my world is when I was 14 years old in the ninth grade, my parents split up. And it was, it was gnarly, okay? And a part of the reason I don't talk about it, one, is I don't want to say anything to dishonor my mom and dad. They both listen to the podcast, too. And if I were to bring them up on stage and they were to tell their story, I think a lot of us would sympathize, sympathize with each of them. Because <clears throat> if they could go back, would they do things different? Who would? Were they both responsible for parts of it? Absolutely. But I can tell you this, as a 14-year-old, I had just surrendered my life to Christ the summer before that. And and I thought, if you become a Christian, everything gets awesome. I became a Christian, and it it got awful. It went the opposite direction. And one of the things that happened is uh, I was 14, my brother's 11. I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed that God would save my parents' marriage. He didn't. He did not answer that prayer. Also, when you're 14 years old and, and, you, and you began to learn some of the realities of the wretchedness of your parents and, you're, and the authorities in your life don't act right, you, you can use that as an excuse to do some awful things. And I did some awful things and tried to blame it on some other people. Okay? That wasn't their fault. That was on me. Part of, part of them going through a divorce, it, it gave us some kind of interesting living situation. Both of them were living out of town. And so during the school year, it wasn't that... It wasn't that hard to figure out where me and my brother would stay and who would take care of us because it's only a few hours in the evening after school and practice and all that. But in the summer, I can just tell you, uh, I know you don't know me and my brother very well, but unsupervised 14- and 11-year-old Martins is never a good idea. Okay, the place will burn down. It literally burned a couple times, but it'll really burn down and never stop. And so guess what happened? Because of that kind of jacked-up family situation, there was a JV football coach in Dillon, South Carolina. We didn't even live in Dillon anymore, and he reached out to my dad and said, hey, why don't you send the boys to Camp Pine Hill Baptist Retreat Center, and I'll put them on work crew for the summers. And so when I was 14 and when Russ was 11, we went to Camp Pine Hill with Coach Bully. And God used the just mess in our home to draw us to that place. That's the place that I met Jesus. That's where I became a Christian with almost no church background. And then at 14 years old, guess what happened? Coach Lee comes to me one morning and says, Joby Martin, I want you to do the counselor devotions. I was 14. All the counselors were all college kids, okay? And he wanted me to lead the Bible studies. I'd never led anything, all right? And he said, I want you to lead the Bible study. 
And so we get to the very first one. And if you've ever been on a mission trip with me, you know the first 30 minutes of every morning starts out in 30 minutes of quiet time with Jesus. You know where that started? That started from the first counselor devotion at Camp Pine Hill. Because I was 14, intimidated, went in. I didn't know what to do, had no plan. And I said, listen, guys, the first thing we're going to do is 30 minutes alone with Jesus. Because really what I need to do is I've got to make up what I'm going to say when I get back. <laughs> and then they all came back and they were like, that was so rich, just time with the Lord. You're such a leader. I was like, I know. That's why I said, go do it. That's how that started. We still do it today. <clears throat> On a Thursday night, I'm standing in the back of the worship center. And this was, this was like a hardcore fundamentalist Baptist camp, okay? This is where I learned, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. And they all did, so I thought we'd be monks. But, and it's also, <clears throat> it, um, it's before Louis Giglio invented real worship. So we were singing camp songs like, I am a C. I am a C-H, I am a C-H-R-A-S-D-I-N. So I was, and again, I was educated in Dylan, so I thought we were speaking in tongues. I thought, I thought we were a Baptist camp. Why were we Pentecostal? But I didn't know we were spelling I'm a Christian. I didn't know. Coach Bully comes up to me, <clears throat> and he says, Joey Martin, come here, boy. I want you to preach the sermon tonight. It's like, tonight, like in two minutes when I'm a C is over? He goes, yeah. And I said, Coach, I'm not very comfortable speaking in front of people. Now, Coach Lee was the meanest Christ follower I've ever met in my whole life. <laughs> he was. He said, comfortable, comfortable. Boy, do you think Daniel was comfortable in the lion's den? Do you think Paul and Silas were comfortable in prison? Boy, do you think Jesus Christ was comfortable on the cross? No, sir. (laughs) So I got my Bible. I said, coach, what do I talk about? He goes, boy, that's easy. You talk about Jesus, you talk about 30 minutes. Go. (laughs) And right when we wrapped up, kumbaya, there I am. Hey. I taught. I don't know if it was good or bad. Some people met Jesus, and then here's what happened. When I came off from teaching the Bible, Coach Lee looked at me and said, Boy, when I see you teach the Bible, Joe Martin, I see two things happen. I see you come alive, and I see them come alive. And it was the first time in my entire life I ever considered going into ministry. And in fact, right after he said that, I said, Coach Lee, maybe, but I will never, ever, ever work at a church. You can write that down, okay? And he just said, Oh, 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 oh. and here I am. All right, so. Now, did God plan my parents' divorce? No. The Bible says God hates divorce. He doesn't hate divorced people. It doesn't mean people are disqualified. But he hates when people break covenants. He hates when people mistreat each other. And yet God Almighty in his sovereign goodness used some self-inflicted pain to lead me to what he had planned. And it wasn't about me, but about him. So God can use your pain. God can also use his provision. I mean, I I think back of how God has provided for us so richly. In 2003, Gretchen and I moved to Jacksonville to become, for me to become the youth pastor at Beach United Methodist Church. You know why we came here? I shouldn't tell you this, but whatever. I was, I I came to work at a Methodist church. I am not Methodist. I have never, I had never attended a Methodist church or a Methodist service. I'm not Methodist theologically or ecclesiologically. But I told Gretchen, we're going to interview at Beach United Methodist Church. And she said, why? I said, baby, it's at the beach. (laughs) We lived in Athens, Georgia, a long way from the beach. And I said, we're not going to go there. It's kind of like a timeshare. We'll go to like one or two interviews, but they'll put us up in an oceanfront hotel because they want us to move here, and they'll pay for our dinners and stuff, and we'll get like a free beach weekend, like two hours of interviews. That's what we'll do. See, I told you I shouldn't be the leader, all right? But that's what we did. (laughs) We get here. We go through the interview. I am overwhelmed by God's hand in the men and women's lives that are interviewing us. One of the questions I ask is, can I preach big church? And they said, no way. The youth guy will never preach big church here at Beach. I was like, okay, it's fine. We walk out of the interview. We're, we're not even two steps out of the interview. And Gretchen leans over and says, we're coming here, aren't we? And I go, looks that way. And sure enough, God told us to come here. We came here. And, and in 2005, I lean over to Pastor Jerry Sweat and say, you know what? The last 12 months may have been the best year of my whole life. Everything we touched in ministry turned to gold. We had students just, you know, bouncing off the walls. Kids at the beach were getting saved. We're surrendering to Jesus. We're being discipled. We started doing mission trips. I mean, <clears throat> it was just awesome. We had some of our closest friends we've ever had. And get this. Little did I know. See, I think I was a lot like Moses here. I think I was a lot like Moses. I told people this all the time. I am content to be the youth pastor at beach all the days of my life. 
love it. And I did love it. Had my own building, had my own staff. And, and little did I know that what God in his provision for me, it was not about me. But he was actually just preparing me for this thing, this idea that God had called the Church of 1122. And so think about this. Of all the pastors in the entire world, for a decade, God decides to put me under the leadership and the mentorship and the authority of the nicest, kindest, most gentle, humble, kingdom-minded pastor that I've ever met named Pastor Jerry Swift. You know why? Because I wasn't ready. And it's why to this day, Pastor Jerry Swift is still my pastor. Because I don't know if you know this about me, but I can be a little rough. I can be a little edgy. I can be a little mean. I can say things like, you wretched black-hearted sinners, you got three years to go on a mission trip or get out. If you don't sponsor a kid, go to hell. I can say all that kind of stuff, <laughs> which is fine if you're just going to be a preacher, but not if God calls you to be a shepherd and a pastor. And for 10 years in God's provision, it was not about me. It was about him preparing me just to play my little part in what is the Church of 1122. And since we've opened the doors to the Church of 1122, which was God's idea, not mine nor Jerry's, since we've opened the doors to this place, you know what's happened? 2,126 people have surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, okay? That doesn't happen if we stay comfortable in the situation that we, we were in, and you better hear this. And you know how many of those 2,126 I've saved? Zero. Zero. I cannot change a heart. Not at all. I, I, people come up to me and say nice, nice things, say, you've changed my life. I ain't changed jack. Okay? I study hard, I yell at you, I pray at the end, God flexes, that's what happens. That's just how it goes. And though, man, you know, I've got lots and lots of weaknesses, here's the one thing I can tell you that I've done, is that I've come before the Lord and said, okay, Lord, I surrender. I'm not the point, I know you're the point. God, my life is like a blank check. You spend my life however you see fit. And as I look back over my life, what I see <clears throat> is that sometimes he used immense amounts of pain for the purposes of his plan, and sometimes he used immense amounts of provision for the purpose of his plan, and it was never about me, it was always about him. And yet, as I've been surrendered to do what he has called me to do, I've never walked in more freedom and more joy and more fullness of life than when it's about him and it's not about me. What if 2015 was that for you? What if you got to the place this year where you said, okay, God, it's not about me, I'm not the point, but you're the point. For some of you, it'd be radical life change. For others of you, for most of you in the room, it would be just go back to where he has placed you, but go on purpose. And understand that the pain or the provision that you're walking in for now, walking in now, is not about you, but it's about him. Jesus says it this way. I love this. This is how I'll close. Jesus says this in Matthew 10. <clears throat> Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Or not one, of, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered, fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father who's in heaven. You know what Jesus is saying here? One is whether you're in pain or provision, he knows. If he's keeping up with the birds and the hairs on your head or the lack thereof, he knows. He knows what's going on. Secondly, you are very important. You are very valuable to him. I know PETA doesn't believe it, but we don't care what they think, that, that you are more valuable than birds. You're more important. You are very valuable to him. And third, and it ain't about you. It's not about you. So don't be afraid because you're not the point he is. And so what if this year was the year that you could say, okay, I'm not afraid, God. I'm not afraid. And God, you can use pain or provision for your plans because it's not about me. It's about you. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for faithful, obedient, extraordinary, average men like Coach Bull Lee and Pastor Jerry Sweat. God, that they would be obedient to you, that they realized that it was not about them, that their story was about your glory. And God, I thank you that in your sovereign hand, they intersected my life, that they shaped and molded me. And it ain't about me. God, that it's about you and you alone. So Holy Spirit, I pray that the people of the church of 1122 in 2015 would receive an immediate, an immediate and an amazing amount of clarity. That scales would fall off of eyes and they would see that it's not about them, it's about you. And God, they would leverage their lives for your glory and your story. And then God, as a result of that, we would walk in an immense amount of freedom, 
and joy and purpose. God, would you comfort those that are afflicted? God, would you afflict those that are too comfortable? Whatever it is, God, would you point us to you because you are the point. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, 2015 is going to be a year of prayer for us. And I want to invite you to come and pray. And that's exactly what you would pray. God, how are you going to use me this year? Maybe that you would come and pray and say, Lord, I surrender no matter what you, what you ask. The answer is yes, that my life is a blank check to be spent by you however you desire. Let us respond.